What am I talking about? We're down in, where are we? Are we in Eloy or Coolidge? Casa Grande. We're in Casa Grande? I'm in the fucking nowhere, let me tell you guys. I see gigantic goddamn buildings on the way here. Airplanes just damn near crashing. There's poison floating in the air over the farms that we've been down here. And you know, there's that old ad, some, you know, you try to get Moses to the mountain. Sometimes you have to bring the mountain to Moses. We've been trying to get Ken on the show for a while. He lives out there and uh, out there in Hawaii, and we finally, we just figured we'd snuck him on the mainland and we'd jump over here and say hi to him. He's in our state, so uh, we thought we would just bring the mountain to Moses. So here we are, Saturday afternoon, we're at uh, Travis Works' place, he makes the Works Grinder. We're at his place down here in uh, Costa Grande. He's got a, uh, I think it's a fifth generation gorge farm here, and uh, they have a hammer in. There's a bunch of classes going on out there. Ken's teaching a class tomorrow. I'm not teaching a class. I'm incognito, no beard. Nobody knows who I am. I'm in, in the uh, land of uh, anvils and hammers and weird beards, and nobody knows who I am. It's weird. So, anyways, uh, Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I didn't even recognize you. What the hell, man? I know. We were talking for a few minutes. You're like, oh, you're in the Marine Corps, huh? Yeah. yeah. Semper Fi, Jarhead. Yeah, I was like, hey, hey Ken, it's Greg Nefford. He goes, oh, shit. You got a haircut, trimmed all up and everything. Shit. It's been a while. Plus 30 pounds. Everyone says I look younger than my age, and it's the fat strips and the wrinkles out of There you go. You know, I look great, and I look old. Dude, I lost 91 pounds. I look like a Sharpay. Did you I had, I did. I had to put a couple pounds on just so I didn't look quite so wrinkly. Man, man, I can only think of what happens to the skin on my belly area if I take forty fifty. Turns into mud flap. I wouldn't know. I could get a Playboy bunny tattoo. The <laughs> there you go. How's Hawaii? It's Hawaii, man. It's paradise. You know, I mean, the struggle is real, dude. Look, so. The other day, I was sitting outside with my, uh, oh, excuse me. I was sitting outside with my Tommy Bahama sh- shirt on, yeah. and I was leaning back in his recliner, you know, and, and I had a Mai Tai in my hand, and I was sipping on it. And I looked up for a second, and I thought, well, hell, there's a cloud. But I couldn't tell because there's like this palm tree, and it was swaying in the breeze. And so I had to lean over to look just to make sure, and I spilt some of that Mai Tai right on my brand-new Tommy Bahama. So the struggle is real. You know, it's it's tough. It's it's a hard place to live. I was telling you, it's a. No, it's the windward side. Yeah, it's just uh, the other side of the mountain. No, I'm in Kaneohe. That would be closer to the Marine Corps base. Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. That's where I was stationed in the Marine Corps, matter of fact. So are you on the side that has the airport that we fly into when we go into nope, the that's, Nope, that's, that's Honolulu, Waikiki okay. side, yeah. I'm on the other side of the Koalaos. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, now that we got it going, um, you know, you've had a long, how long have you been in the knife business to be covered? Hmm, 32 years um, making knives professionally, I guess you'd say, yeah. Okay. 
And, you know, I think people know you for your work with Coachella. They know you for your sharpening that they've seen around. That's one of the big retail classes, right? What else do they know you for? Hmm. Speed safe, um, no tool take apart knife, field strip, designed with Kershaw for 10 years, worked with CRKT for, I'm thinking I'm going on 13. Yes, sir. Okay. And then what's the most popular knife you have Leak, probably, yeah. Oh, holy shit. That thing's, I'm guessing, close to 4 million in sales units. That's crazy. I'm guessing. So how long has that knife been on the market? Hmm. I'd like to say since 1999. There's so many different kinds of patents, right? I mean, you got your provisional patent. So let's say you have an idea, but you don't know how well it's going to go and it would be really difficult for you to defend a patent if some large company came and started stealing your idea. Uh, so what I like to do is, is test the viability of a product by coming out with something that's cool, going around to different companies and saying, hey, sign this non-disclosure agreement because in 2001, I think they changed the patent laws for the, to, uh, the first to file as opposed to what it used to be, the rights of the inventor. So now if I show you my shit and you like it, and I didn't make you sign a non-disclosure agreement. You could, by law, just go patent my technology and be totally legal doing it. It's not right, but it's the way the law is written right now. Unless I'm pending, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. And then you could even file for it, but I have I have earlier filing date, so then it would fall on me. But then you've got provisional patent, and you've got utility patent, and you've got design patent, and you've got process patents. So there's several different kinds of patents. I do. Well, I mean, the beauty of intellectual property, of course, we all want to trademark our names. We all want to trademark our, trademark our logos. If we have a special name for some technology that we come out and we call it something like, for me, it was SpeedSafe, it's smart to trademark that because that's a common word that we use in the knife industry to explain that kind of assisted opening knife, and mine in particular. So it's turned into a valuable uh, item, and you don't just want everybody in the world to be using your word, your your trademark on on their knife without some sort of a licensing agreement how many how many patents do you think you have mm, i i somewhere between 53 and 57 because i'm not exactly sure what is issued and what is still pending mm -hmm. but it's something that effect okay cool how, how, how about how many new uh and unique mechanisms for locking mechanisms locking mechanism i think i have two locking i have one locking mechanism pending and that would be a bearing lock system okay um don't have any other locking mechanism per se pending and what are the other patents then? Are they in, uh, are they in like a stupid opening? Or are they... Field strip. Um, what do you mean? Field strips is a knife that I came out with CRKT a while ago. Just happened to have one in my pocket. But it's a knife. It's a way that you can, you know, with your, when you're in the Marine Corps, right, when you're in the Marine Corps and you're, and your M16 gets a little sand in it, you can take that thing apart yeah. in a field and clean it. And just about everything you got, you can. But what about your pocket knife? You drop that thing in the sand, you're screwed, right? right. So you just spin the wheel off, flip the latch, drop it on the ground, falls apart, no small parts, easy to clean up and field, um, and really easy to put back together. Let's put the blade in the, in the knife. I just happened to have this thing in my suitcase. I wasn't even planning on bringing it, but I needed a beater. 
never even seen that. I love it. Yeah. And they make a lot of those? They do. It's kind of popular. I mean, when you're gutting a moose or something, That's your pocket right. knife, yeah. With your, when you're gutting a moose with your pocket knife or something, you want to be able to get that blood and guts out of it. People's knives are gnarly. When's the last time you open up a pocket knife and looked inside of what, what kind of garbage people have in there? Oh, I know. I get them back all the time. They're yeah. Gross. They're gross. Potting soil, cigar, pipe, pipe, uh, pipe uh, tobacco. What's that? Are the handles all aluminum on this? On that one, yeah. yeah. We got them on all kinds of different configurations. Super cool tech. And then we got the new one, too, with the second generation field strip. That's just a, a lever you throw to the side and push up, and the whole thing comes apart. Oh, you don't have to do the wheel. Anymore. You don't have to do the wheel. I kind of like the wheel. I, like the wheel. I, I wanted to do a thumb, a nail nick on the, on the back strap and just rotate the back strap quarter turn and get rid of it there. And then rotate the handle quarter turn and tear it apart there. We haven't done that yet, but it is patented. Oh, cool. I like it. Um, so you're, um, uh, you know, you haven't started your own knife company all these years. You've been doing stuff for <laughs> You are your company of you, basically. Well, I live in Hawaii. I mean, I'm at a complete competitive disadvantage being in Hawaii, right? Right. I mean, everything costs twice as much to bring in, and and just getting to the West Coast is five and a half hours on a plane. Yeah. Shipping's not- ridiculous. Okay, right. Cost of living's ridiculous. Electricity's ridiculous. But you pay to be to pay to live in paradise, right? Like, if I lived stateside, if I lived in Maine, I'd have had a factory a long time ago. I love this stuff. Yeah. I like solving the big problems and seeing the whole thing come together. Yeah. And for me, it's more like I want to assemble a team of the most hotshot designers, and I don't care where they come from for the most part, and be the conductor at some point. Like, right now, I feel like I'm playing a clarinet in a band, um, and there's a whole bunch of members in the band. But I think I know enough people in a knife game that it would be really cool to assemble the super team and just dominate the world of knives. Mm. You know, it's funny. It's, uh, it's always two things. It's uh, concept and then it's making. And making Execution, the, uh, making right? Time, Execution. That's right. <laughs> yeah. There's a battle going on for the soul of knife making right now. And I feel like in many ways the pendulum has, had swung and has swung very hard to China. And I feel, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a part of the pendulum that's bringing back to the USA. I feel a bit struggling mm-hmm. to try and get it back down the shore. It's really hard. Once it's tough. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of problems. The cost of of, of manufacturing is high. Uh, then you've got OSHA, OSHA regulations. You've got your insurances, your medical, your dental, yeah. your vision, your all those kinds of things. Yeah. Your sick leaves. You got a million things going on. A lot of younger generation now don't necessarily like the trades. I mean, they want to graduate high school and get a cushy job, corner office, and 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 get a job in management. Yeah, nobody wants to pay their dues. Nobody wants to get in there and get dirty. That's a kind of person, you know. We uh, I I really scream for these guys who like the experience of the creation act, making stuff with their hands. I try to tap into hearing that. I love that. I love crafts people in general, and I'm not talking about somebody who puts a pair of wiggly eyes on a walnut and calls it craft. Yeah, but somebody that has a real skill, something that they've spent a lifetime trying to perfect. Oh, I have nothing but admiration for that. We have to get you over factor sometimes. Well, those items have soul, right? I mean, I think that's what's missing today in society, and most. Most goods that we buy, they just lack a certain soul. Nobody really loved on these things as much. And when you find something that somebody just worked their heart out on, it's obvious when you hold it in your hand. It's like, wow, somebody really loved this piece. And then it, it makes it, you, you just get more of a connection to that. Yeah, then, you know, that's one of the things that, um, 
It's funny when people outside the knife world look in and see the higher prices that have popped up in the last 10 years, they don't get it. And that is kind of the value add, is connecting to the people and the story behind the knife being made, connecting into the craftsmanship behind it. You know, there's a different expectation when you get above that $400 mark. Oh, yeah. Below right. So I think that's the thing everybody really connects with. That's the big value proposition is that they get a chance to meet the owners, know the people, know the company, and feel like they're part of the brand. Right. We used to have that with Samuel Colt. We had it with Harley. We had it with Ford. You know, we've had it with all these great American companies, but everything's turned into this big corporate blur. Well, a lot of the manufacturing has been chased, chased outside of the country, right? Yeah. And I don't think it's any fault of anybody, but I think it's more of our politicians that are pushing us that direction. You know, for a long time, uh, something that was made in Japan, at least when I was a kid, was considered inferior to something that was made in America. And now the things that are made in Japan are considered high quality and good. Yeah. And things that were made in China were considered shoddy, workmanship, cheap, what have you. And now China's building some really brilliant things. Right, and now you've got India and you've got uh, Vietnam that are coming on as manufacturers and people are getting more of the economy stuff done there. Um, it's turning into more and more of a global market. I get the global market. I'm an anti-globalist, though, because, you know, uh, our morals and our highfalutin way of life that we all like so much has a moral component, which gets inescapable. I feel like when we buy, I feel like Americans want, you know, you talk to the average blue-collar person who's one of my customers. They believe in a 40-hour work week, time and a half over time. They believe in medical and dental and ocean. They believe in clean water and clean air. Right. And then they want to go get a $20 knife from Walmart. Uh, from a country that doesn't follow any of those rules. And we have not reconciled that as a country yet. We, you know, consumers want all these things. They vote for all these things. And then their neighbor down the street who's a knife maker who owns a knife company, they don't want to pay the price that it costs to do that. And we've got a disconnect between our morals and our, and our buying. I agree with you. I think part of that is minimum, uh, what is that, guaranteed minimum wage, like 15 bucks or something yeah. like that. Um, I think there's a lot of things that play into that, the cost of the overhead. I think it's really difficult for America to be able to compete. You know, like just to say from a standpoint of a, a, a product in Walmart, let's say, yeah. or, or Costco. I mean, most of that stuff is made overseas. Uh, not a whole lot of it's made in America anymore. There's a real argument, there's a real argument, a real discussion to be made that says if your society has all these rules and needs to consume things made outside of those rules, and either the rules are bad that you've come up with, or you shouldn't allow the things not made by your rules to be in. And we haven't, our politicians don't have the balls to make that. We haven't addressed those bad. issues. Because that's the real thing that's going on. We have expectations and we cheat. And we haven't fixed that. And that's a problem for me. But I don't think that is everyday Americans. I don't think that is the heart and core and soul of America. I honestly believe that is more of the big corporations and the government that are pushing a lot of the jobs outside of the country. You know, and, and to to what ends? I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you in some respects, but you know, you said earlier to me we were chatting, and you said that you guys had offered knives at twenty and twenty nine dollars. Exactly. And the twenty dollar one outsold the other one. And the twenty nine one. This is a Walmart experiment that we did years and years ago. So people oftentimes, of course, on the internet, you know, the areas that we hang out in, <laughs> it's kind of funny because you get guys waving their flag and, and talking about made in America while they're sitting in a chair that's made by Ikea on a desk that's made by Ikea, yeah. standing behind a computer that was made in China um, with their clothes that is all made in China and shoes that are made in China saying, I'm not going to buy a Chinese knife. Yeah. Yeah. You know, either 
either have some ground to stand on or shut the fuck up. You know, it's funny. I, I've got, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, Bobby's around me a lot. I'm kind of in a, is like almost a psychotic American made guy. Dude, I'm with you. I wish I could. I tried. It's crazy expensive and it's a lot of work. Um, try buying a pair of sneakers. You know, I mean, I hate to say it. I've bought sneakers from a lot of different companies. The only ones I can get that I really like the way they fit and don't hurt my knees. And, like, it matters to me. It's Nike. A company that, in my core, <laughs> you know, pisses me off. But I feel like mm, clothes and shoes and stuff like that, I, I kind of feel like I understand why it's made in Asia. Um, but every market that goes over there doesn't come back. Every market that goes over there decimates a community. And I think about the craftsmanship required to make knives. You know, people say, why don't you get a second shift going? They always tell me that. I go, I spent the last 12 years finding these 50 people. Mm-hmm. Just to find 50 people to go for a job. And you got to build a wolf pack. I mean, my goodness. you got to have the right team in place. And sometimes that takes a lot of sorting through yeah. before you find that core group. And then you want to be able to reward them. Yeah, and, and it, it's challenging. But, you know, we're doing it, and we do it with well, and uh, we do it well with some, we do with some grace, I think. Um, I think in order to know where we're going, we first have to know where we've been. Yeah. So if we follow a trajectory, let's just look at the 1950s, and we follow what was what was happening in 1950, 1955, 1960, 1965, 70, on and on and on. Yeah. We see a certain trajectory in the knife industry, so it's quite easy if we forecast through, just following that straight line where things are happening. Right now, I think what's trending more is I think the larger folding knives are kind of falling away. And now we have more of a woke society. We have people that are afraid to speak up, speak their mind, stand their ground. There's less of that knucklehead, hardcore, tough guy, skullduggeries type pocket knife. Um, And it's more of the ambiguous, simple line, slimmer knife that you're not going to scare anybody if you're trying to cut your sandwich in half at Hardee's. Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, I think that's why the dessert knife did so good, right? I mean, it had sprinkles and donuts all over it, and 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 everything is. I mean, people are putting little kitty cats all over their knives and doing anything they can to try to get the fear factor away from a pocket knife. You know, I see a couple of markets. I see there's this, uh, uh, you know, the knife world. There are fewer and fewer people you would think carrying knives as we've gone from the country and rural to more city living and cities. The closer you are to more people, the more people in your office, the more chances there are to offend people and have a boss ask you not to bring a knife to work, right? Right. There's less and less use for that everyday serious knife carrier. So I've seen two things happen. There's this hardcore group that is defiant about it, and they're your rogue, you know, former military, you know, not vaccine, no mask, don't tell me what to do, and I got my stuff to Armageddon. You got that crowd. And I've seen their sense, they still like a chunky, rugged, individualist knife the same way they want a light bar on their pickup truck, the same way they would think it was completely gay to drive around on the test. Right, and they got their high-lift jack in the back. Yeah, yeah and, and I love those guys. They're carrying around four tomahawks in cross-draw across their back. I mean, yeah, I get those guys. I mean, we got a few of them here. It's kind of kind of yeah, funny. Yeah, and, and then I also, I have guys. And I, I love those guys. I don't mean any disrespect. I love those guys. Yeah, but Because, you know, they're, they're a core part of my business. But um, I also have the Tesla crowd carrying, you know, my heavy knives. And it kind of cracks me up. So I think there's, in a society that's become more and more emasculated, more and more feminized, more and more like we're all the same, bullshit. Um, I think guys are, there's a certain group that are carrying them as talisman. Like, this is, you know, it's like, a, it's a little bit of a... a defiant. It's a little defiant. 
And yeah, it's a passive aggressive defiance. Yeah, yeah I get it. Wearing skinny jeans and a pair of like four hundred dollar white boots, but with the Justin Bieber do the kind of swish hairdo yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they might have beard wax and stuff. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah. Following you. Yeah, yeah. Embroider on your back pockets. Hey, listen, we're going to talk about nudity in a few minutes, but I really want to. <laughs> I, want to I, I want to talk about these crowds because I always think about who am I making a knife for. You know, it's important. You got to know your demographic. Yeah. So, you know, we've got that hardcore kind of hanger on who, you know, probably has food in their garage. And then you've got this, uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so the slightly prepper, ex-military, slightly paranoid, and, you know, turning out to be right more often than not crowd. And then you've got this other burgeoning crowd of these, um, they're kind of hipsters, and they, like, everything they buy, they want to be a reflection of how savvy they are. So they buy the perfect shoe, the perfect belt, they're buying jeans of salvage denim from the perfect company. And uh, there, there is a big group of that crowd. And I think yeah. Are they the ones that wear the vegan leather? Which I think is funny. What is that? My daughter, my daughter bought dog collars for our dogs, and she's like, oh, yeah, Dad. But, you know, these aren't leather. They're vegan leather. I'm like, what is that, Naga hide? Is that vinyl? Is that vinyl? Is that what that is? What is vegan leather? I, I don't know. I still don't know. Oh my God. Uh, what is that? A, somebody sticks somebody sticks a fruit roll up out in the sun, lets it dry up a little bit, yeah, makes a collar out of it. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> are you um, are you in, when you're designing, you try to visualize kind of? And I try not to use vegan leather. Yeah, yeah. I have no vegan leather. We <laughs> <laughs> old fashioned murder based leather. Murder is um, when you're thinking about making knives these days, who are you thinking about? Who's the crowd you're thinking about? I look at demographics, man. I study the demographics. I study trajectory. I go on the internet and I study what people are buying, what what uh, custom makers are, are building, what seems to be trending. Um, honest to God, right now, knife industry is asleep. And I hate saying that, but it's asleep. What do you, what do you mean? What's the last thing that you've seen that's truly innovative come out of the knife industry? Well, stuff out of my place. I mean... <laughs> Truly innovative now. Truly innovative. Yeah, somebody came out with some invention that just kind of kicked the knife industry in the ass a little bit, you know? Something that is really... I see just things getting... Like, I haven't been really stoked at going around a knife show and seeing what's really, really cool for a while now. And and and, and I'm not talking about... There's, there's tons and tons of great knives. But I'm talking the next cool thing. Like, speed safe kick the knife industry's ass. Okay, I don't know what that is. Tell me what it is. That's my assisted opening knife that I did back with Kershaw back in the day. What's it have? Does it have a, uh, a wire spring, like, at an angle? It does. It's over center kind of? Well, it was the whole idea of 400 years of pocket knife making, and there were manual pocket knives, and there were automatic knives, and nobody built a semi-automatic knife. Yeah. I can say that now that the patent's expired. Okay. But it was a, kind of a semi-automatic the, the, the law stated that you needed manual pressure applied to a button, sp button spring or other mechanism contained in a handle, and that's what the definition of a switchblade knife is. But manual pressure applied to a thumb stud or opening lug is the definition of a one-handed knife. So as long as you're pushing, using manual force on the blade in some portion of the opening of the blade, it would be considered a manual knife. Are they still making that? Yes. Is that still patented? No. Patent expired uh, last year, January. Um, I, I know. I just noticed some knives from another company that had Benchmade. What do they call it? Radius lock or axis lock? Axis lock. Yeah. I, I saw that. I saw well, the patent expired on that too. My, but I understand that there's like a a foreign patent that's still good on that. But the one in America kind of 
uh, expired. So that's public domain at this point as well. That's a pretty good lock mechanism too, I think. It's one of the best, and yeah. it's ambidextrous. Yeah. It's, an, it's incredibly tough. A Flavio, Ecoma, a Flavio Ecoma came out with the bolt lock at CRKT came out, and that is one of the toughest locks I've ever seen. How does that work? It uses a, a, a forked set of dowels, I guess you would call it, that go through the handles and through the blade and absolutely lock the blade in place. Oh, that's pretty cool. And you have to push the center of the pivot shaft, um, depress that in order to close the blade. Oh, so wow. it's a really convenient way to unlock a knife where you don't have to stick your hand in the travel of the blade. So it's kind of cool. You just depress the pivot. And it works really good. Cool. It's a tough knife. I mean, I've done pull-ups with that thing hanging in the rafters. Who designed that? Flavio Ecoma. Brilliant, brilliant maker from Brazil. New He's the guy that came up with the IKBS. Oh, really? The bearing system. Is it new or is the, is the, lo the bolt lock new? Or it's been out for a couple of years now. Okay. Yeah. It's got some Flavio's brilliant. Right. Flavio's brilliant. I mean, IKBS has become standard in the folding industry now. He didn't get an American patent, so it's public domain. He got a Brazilian patent, which really didn't mean anything. But he didn't know any better. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I'm, I guess I'm giving a big speech here tomorrow talking about how Talk to protect yourself. Right, intellectual property, right. Yeah, you know, and not just the intellectual property, but also, you know, trying to get the protection of an 800-pound gorilla to help develop your product. Because if, if me, a small potatoes person, was to come out with a really cool invention, try to keep it all to myself and start mass manufacturing, and some large corporation come in and decide to steal it from me, and I take them to court, and even if the courts rule in my favor, all they have to do is appeal the case and keep appealing the case until I'm broken, begging for, begging for mercy. And then they not only end up with all my intellectual property, but they, they have all my money too. It's unfortunate that's the way the laws are, but they are. Yeah. So I, you know, I had a friend who developed a folding knife, and I know you've seen it. Um, it takes the exacto blade, and it's a folding knife, and then you lock it out. The blade locks out, and it's an, you know it's got the exacto blade in it. And he had the patent on it, and you know had, had the patent on, holds the patent on it, and uh, went and showed it to one of the big box uh, home repair places, and they said thank you very much, and be on your way. And six months later, it was for sale. They bogarted his shit, right? Yeah. yeah. And he had the intellectual property for it. Orange and blue. Yeah. No kidding. Wow. I mean, See, are, I hear all that kind of stuff all the time. Ago. This was years ago. And uh, he's the son of a famous knife maker. Here in Arizona. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Unbelievable. It's an amazing story. Yeah, and you know, it is the 800-pound gorilla. I mean, you can't even start to fight with them. You know? Right, but I, see. I, I just thought the very first time probably have enough shekels piled up that I could get into a fight. But they're not, they're not a big fight with one of those guys. Exactly, and I, I know exactly the scenario that you're talking about. And the problem was, I think that he tried to keep that so close to his chest, and he wanted to make all the money on that thing <laughs> that he neglected to go out and say, "Hey, big box store with a huge um, uh, following that could sell hundreds and hundreds of these, th hundreds of thousands of these things a month. Um, would you be interested in some really cool new technology? Please sign this non-disclosure agreement, then I'll let you know, or I'll I'll tell you what I got." If he would have had somebody tell him or inform him or let him know. He did. They had attorneys and non-disclosure agreements. All th everything was signed and they still ripped him off. Yeah. Oh, then he's got a huge payday coming. You'd think. You'd he would think, have to. But you've got to roll up with some money to make that happen. 
Oh, but the money is so huge on it. The money's huge. Dude, you know what those things, you know how many of those knives, those, uh, those, that type of knife they sell a week in this country when it was hot? And it's three, you know, it's three times, uh, three times damages, I think. Four times damages. Yes, sir. I know. I've talked to him about it and he's like, I just didn't, he goes, I started into it and he goes, it was just consuming my soul. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And that that was a super knife. (laughs) I know. I mean, it's a genius idea. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what do you got cool or new happening on the event horizon? I'm trying to see the, uh, a new company thing that I'm playing with. I don't really want to talk about it out loud, but I got 25 knives that I've got to get designed sometime in the next couple of years and, and, and have that all laid out and, and prototyped and CAD filed and in production before we can launch this thing. So that's kind of a, on a hush hush right now, but cool things are happening. I, and another thing is, I got a new sharpener coming out with WorkSharp at some point, maybe this year, maybe next year. I'm not sure. Have so you, things are cool. Have you seen the CNC sharpeners, that laser sharpeners that they have in uh, True Value Hardware stores? No. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I saw. Does it work? Did you try it? <laughs> yeah. Um, it it shows you all the different blade styles. You can't put a dagger in it. You can't put a wedge guide. But you can put just about any other damn thing you can figure. You put it in this thing. And it goes in with a laser and it reads the edge and then it comes out and sharpens the knife for you. What does it sharpen it with? Um, a, a couple little grinding wheels. A little diamond it. wheels, CBN wheels, cut off wheels. You know, I don't know what the I don't know what the material is that they're grinding, but I was blown away by the thing and it came out pretty freaking sharp. Nice. I know. I was surprised. cool. Well, and what it was was there was a lady there with her kitchen knives. She was running the thing while I was getting keys made at the hardware store. So I was kind of like. What? She brought her whole drawer, uh, uh, drawer of abandoned kitchen knives over and just like, hey, can we test this one more time? And I think it was like 250 to, to sharpen the blade, and she just followed oh. the instructions and put it in. And Who would have had like a coin slot thing where you put 250 and you'll sharpen your card. knife? She put her credit card in, and it just sharpened her knife for her. Yeah, that's how old I am. I'm I thinking just, coin slot, and you're talking credit card. Yeah. I told you I'm analog, man. That's so funny. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, ma'am, can I see your knife for a second? I'm like, my God, it's sharp. I'm like, man, maybe I could get one of those in the factory. <laughs> <laughs> was it a big money item? Um, well, it's the, about the size of, you know those machines where you could put a penny and a quarter in and you go like this and it squishes the penny into a bracelet thing? I'll, I'll, I'll just say, yeah. Like when you're when you're like at a, a tourist place and it'll, it'll squish the penny into like Niagara Falls. I saw those, but not when it would it's, make a bracelet a out of a penny. That it's would. It's a machine about that big. Okay, cool. So you know, uh, I don't know, maybe a foot and a half wide. So this is a service that this company is offering. So you come in with your knives and it will sharpen them. It's a machine that they have in two hardware stores. But it's not one you can buy. It's one that you just utilize. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't know what. I don't know what the financial terms are on the machine. But it's, <laughs> some company owns the machine, and they have it like a vending machine. That's and cool. True value, and it sharpens your knife. That's cool. I mean, it, you know, and I just saw it was laser guiding or optically figuring out where the edge was, and then going in and sharpening. I was like, holy shit, that's legit. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, sharpening is the most, the hardest thing to make not handmade, right? You know, it's funny. I mean, you think about it. How many knife companies are there out there? And how many knife companies actually offer product to support their own knives, mm-hmm. to sharpen their own knives? The problem is, is knife companies are really good at taking two pieces of metal and putting a third piece of metal in between them and make it fold in the middle and have some sort of a lock. But when it comes to uh, coming out with some kind of motor and gear reduction thing with some sort of rechargeable battery thing or some plug-in-the-wall yeah. sort of thing, it becomes really complicated and it's scary. Different, different specialty. Exactly. So um, <clears throat> you've got this other company you're starting up. 
and uh, it doesn't belong to me, but I'm help. I'm seeding the company. Right, I think it's going to be a really cool thing. Principal intellectual property for this other company. You're the principal intellectual driver. I'm the guy that's just seeding it with new designs okay. initially. Right. I don't necessarily have any other than possibly design patents. I don't know that I have any utility patents to offer just yet because I'm too busy trying to seed this thing to stop and try to figure out a new gadget. What's the um? Can you tell us the nature of the knives? Are they all fixed blade or are they all? Folded? No, it's all over the place. Is it fixed it's, and folded? Yeah, it will be both. Okay. And there may be even some derivatives in there. There may be some some gadgets. I mean, I'm not really necessarily looking at this thing being a particularly just knife company. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't want to pigeonhole it into just one thing. I think it could be whatever it turns out to be. I think initially the knife thing will be fun. Cool. Um, uh, any idea, uh, do you have, is there a name for the company yet? No. Okay. And I don't want to give away too much. Uh, we don't give away too much. And then, uh, can you tell us about any of the folders that are in the lineup that you're thinking about? Like, is there a kind of style or genre or, uh, kind of design spirit behind the first ones that have kind of come out, come out of your head? I think the whole thing right now is playing around with kind of taking some of the old classic designs, modernizing them a little bit, adding a little bit of modern flavor, but still keeping some of that old school vibe. Mm-hmm. I think people are into vintage. I know my daughter's into vintage. She's yeah. 29. My son's into vintage. He's 26. I'm into vintage just because I thought that was shit was cool in high school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know and, I, I, and so I think it covers a huge demographic. It's like a huge, it covers such a, a big. Too because uh, I just did a titanium Barlow, you know, and it's got a faux Barlow bolster on it. But I mean, it's titanium. It's got a traditional shape, drop point blade. A faux low? Farlow? Farlow. Something, whatever. I mean, I'm just playing around with it, seeing where it comes out. It's outside of my main wheelhouse, and it's pretty cool. You got some cool stuff out there, man. I'm so proud of you, you don't even know. I'm excited to see somebody keeping America, doing it in America, hiring America. You know what's funny is, uh, I didn't know that was going to be the thing when I got going. I just said, well, I know I don't live in China, so I'm going to make it here until everybody make it here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you just know what you got, right? Right. So, uh, I I didn't expect it to do what it did. And then when it's it's done when it's done. I'm always like, okay, this has got to be the end. And then, you know, we had 57% growth last year. How do you even manage that? You know, I've talked to so many knife companies. It seems like this COVID thing, everybody was hitting record numbers. Yeah. I don't know what was going on. People staying at home and just hanging on Amazon saying, hey, I need a pocket knife or a machete for my bug out bag. I, think I don't know what it was, but it's something. useful stuff. Maybe, yeah. You know, uh, and I think you get scared and you buy things you think might be useful. I think there's something primal about knives. That's why you and I like them, probably. I love them. They're primal. Dude, I grew up in Appalachia. I mean, I grew up so far back in the woods. I mean, we had a two-seater outhouse. We heated our house with wood. My mom baked bread in a wood cook stove. Did you Did you grow up in a holler like Chuck Yeager? I did. In a holler. He was a, he was a holler boy, too. Yeah, Lynn Camp Road, and right beside that was Pat Patterson's holler. But we lived on Lynn Camp Road next to it. But it would often be, I mean, it was a gravel road. Everybody, I, I grew up in Palestine, West Virginia, population 120. Everybody had the same exact phone number. Everybody had the same exact address. Party line. Who's the party, party line, yeah. You are not that old. How I'm old telling you? you the truth. How old are you? I'm 59. <laughs> You're 59 and they had a party line when you were a kid? I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. You figured where I grew up was at least 20 years behind the rest of the country. Oh my God. That's so funny. They still are. Exactly. I bet you I go back home, one of my buddies still got an eight-track player in his truck. 
<laughs> I guarantee it. I guarantee it. You know, when the eight track came out, I thought it was awesome because you could go right to the next song. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't have to listen to Fast Forward and guess where it is. Yeah. You know, when you, when you talk. Or you get halfway through your favorite jam and then it stops and it has to go to the next section, right? Uh -huh. Start all over. Oh, right? yeah, that's totally right. Yeah. Um, how old are your kids? Uh, my son is 26, my daughter's 29. When I talk to my kids, 13 and 15, and I just explain, like, little things. Okay, like I got an old F-100 pickup truck. First time each one of them went for a ride with me in the truck, they didn't know what the thing was on the on the door. What's this thing? I'm like, that's for putting the window down. Like, how? And so they put their hand on it, and they're like, they're like trying to push it, like, you know, the, the window's going to go up and down. I go, no, you turn it like a crank. And my son, he just thought it was the coolest thing. He's like, you need to move this to make the window go up and down. And, uh, How old was he at that point? Oh, you know, he was maybe nine or something. You only let him jump in your truck when he was nine? I got it then. Oh, okay. Okay, that you makes know, I, sense. You had kind of led me along there. This path that I'm thinking, what, your kids never jumped in your truck before? <laughs> well, I what the hell? Truck until <laughs> you were driving a Tesla before that, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so okay. it's funny that, you know, if you tell them, yeah, you used to have to get up and change the channel, they're like, you know, they don't even get it. Oh, like, dude, everybody had a pair of vice grips on the on the, on the chain, channel changer, the, the, what the hell you call it, the dial. <laughs> the dial was it was broken, and you had a coat hanger, and it was wrapped in aluminum foil. I used to cut the deal with my sister. I'm like, hey, if you hold three, you hold the you antenna, hold the three, right? Gilligan's Island, I'll hold the three little rascals. There you go. There you go. I remember those days. I grew up without a TV, but I'd go to my neighbors or my grandparents' house. They had a TV. We didn't have a TV. We had a, we had a base station. What, what's that? that was like a big CB radio where you could talk to Argentina. You know what the hell they were saying, but it was kind of cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And then my dad would make me climb up the antenna like 80 feet in the air on a hill just to turn the antenna so we could get in maybe Venezuela or Australia or whatever. That, no, that, that's yeah. awesome. What did your dad do when you were growing up? Auto body and fender repair. Yeah. Plus he had a wrecker and he would he had rec part of the wrecker rights in the county. So, okay. you know, when, when it's kind of cool. West Virginia? I joined the Marine Corps in 1980, and I graduated high school in 1981. I did a year delayed entry. I did delayed entry, too. Oh, I was a couple years behind you. And you went in the Marine Corps on the East Coast to go to Paris Island? I did. So did I. No Hollywood Marine. No Hollywood Marine. No offense to any of you, faggot. <laughs> Mountain climbers. All right, and for everybody else, I didn't mean that kind of, I just, you don't even know what I'm talking about, people. So, for everybody, soy boys and skinny jean uh, folks, don't be offended, that wasn't an anti-gay slur. It was totally anti-gay. <laughs> it totally was. Bunch of queer out in California. I just, you know my thing, and honestly, God, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I love everybody. Okay. But you know what, I got my own thing going on, my head down, my ass is up, and I'm working. And I, I, you know, I appreciate everybody. If if that's what you're into, that's what you're into. I get it, okay. But I'm not going to be a soldier in your army. I'm just not going to be a soldier in your army. <laughs> it's not because I don't love you. It's not because I don't appreciate you. It's because I got my own shit going on. Right. You know. Everyone, and and that ain't my thing. Everyone's twisted this up. You know, like I, I look. The world is a better place than it was 34 years ago. It absolutely is in many ways because there were people being drugged around by bumpers when you and I were young for their choices. It's not happening as much anymore, so the world's got to be a better place. Got to be a better place, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, people, you know, Jim Crow's gone. Racism's gone. I mean, uh, Good. You know, slavery's gone. Uh, you know, there's still racism. You know, it's funny because I grew up in Appalachia, and I don't remember any racism. I don't remember it. 
I, I don't ever remember somebody saying something terrible um, racially. You know, maybe it's because of a predominantly white environment and there just wasn't anybody else around. Yeah. It wasn't until I was in the Marine Corps where I actually realized there was such thing as a racism. You know, everyone twists up the fact that human beings are, are, are we're, we have a tendency to like a group. Mm. We like a group together with like. It's very common. Dude, I've been living around, I, I, I left home at a pretty young age. I joined the Marine Corps, I put in for the East Coast, they sent me as far west as they could get me. I'm in Hawaii now. My wife's Hawaiian, my wife's Chinese. Most of my friends are Asian of some type. Uh, I've spent more time in that culture than I have in West Virginia culture at this point. Yeah. I still talk like a redneck, but I can work a pair of chopsticks, let me tell you. You're a multicultural hillbilly. Pretty much. I, I'm, I'm like, I don't even know where I belong, you know? You belong wherever you are. I've been to China so many times, and I love the Chinese people. Chinese people are just hardworking people. They're just trying to get, get, get ahead. They're trying to feed themselves. I mean... It's the politics I don't particularly care for, but the people themselves, they've been very kind to me, very good to me, and, and, and willing to give when they didn't even have anything to give. So I have nothing but admiration and respect for the people of China. I just, you know, don't dig the politics. Yeah. Don't dig the bully pulpit. Yeah, politics are rough. Politics are rough. All right. Well, uh, I think we've covered knives. Where you're going with knives? You got any other projects outside of that uh, company or that brand that you look like you're getting ready to spearhead? I think I'm just getting a little older now, you know. And at some point, I got to learn to say no. And right now, it's four, five, well, five companies. All leaning on you. All leaning on me, and I'm one person. So, you know, at some point, I've got to take that beautiful, beautiful wife of mine and and go run around on some beach somewhere's and take her to Spain or take her to Paris or take her somewhere so we can just enjoy us time hey, instead of everything. Why not? Why not? What's wrong with a nudie beach, right? Now we're entering the nude stuff. So if you all are offended by that, you can all pound sand and hit the We're going live to the nudie beach right now. Bobby, how are things going over there? Good. No, Bobby's naked right now. You guys don't know. Our producer is completely naked. He's been bragging for years. It's untrue. Ready to write for Putting him at 37 degrees out. So, uh, what's the new, you live next to a new beach in Hawaii? No, I don't. No, you don't? Uh-uh. <laughs> I know. It's not next to a new, it's, it's, it's across the island, but well, yeah. You have to go there on purpose. Exactly. Why not? Why not? Okay. I mean, I'm just asking. Uh, come on now. When we were kids, we had, I mean, school and everything else, we were beat up. We were taught to hate who we are. We were taught to, ha- or taught to, to hate our bodies. We were taught, um, shame. we were taught shame. Shame. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you filthy boys with your yeah. filthy penises, yeah. blah, 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 yeah. blah, right? right? And and remember when you was a little kid, and I think my, little kid, my kids did this. Your kids probably did the same thing. They three, four years old. You get them out of the bathtub trying to dry them off with that towel, and what's the first thing they do? They gotta just they just gotta shake free of that towel, and then you're chasing them around the living room. Sometimes they go out in the yard, run around, starter naked. Why? Kid gotta have naked time. Yeah. What's wrong with that when you get older? Get rid of some of that bullshit luggage. That luggage it's other people's luggage. You know, all those insecurities. Look, it ain't perfect, but it's me. This is the vessel I'm in. It ain't who I am. I love it. Either, either, either like it or get the fuck out of my way. All right, let's, let's talk just a little bit about naked skydiving. Why not? Skydiving. How did this naked skydiving thing happen? 
Oh, dude, that was so many years ago. It was a skydive Hawaii. It was a brand new skydiving company in Hawaii. And, and I was working on the aircraft, trying to keep the aircraft maintained. And my buddy had bought this 1929 fleet and had all kind of vintage stuff on it, right? It was, it was flown by Amelia Earhart. She was written. It was given to Charles Lindbergh by Mr. Fleet in 1929. And my buddy found this thing in a barn in Maui. Then he was a pilot for Hawaiian Airlines at the time. And this thing was in shambles. So I spent years and years building this thing up. And it was, it was a biplane. It was pretty cool. And uh, this was back in the day when you had a VHS tape, the big recorder. And they were like, hey, man, let's go out and let's do some jumps out of this plane, this vintage airplane. And so I get up there and I'm like, okay, let's do this thing. So I fly up and I'm in, this, in the front seat, pilot's in the back. And I'm thinking, well, my buddy's got his video camera out there. I got I to gotta do this thing justice, right? I'm young, man. I'm like in the 20s. So I'm like, okay. So I take my chute off and I just strip down Starkers. And I put my chute back on. I'm sitting down in this little tight seat, right? So I don't know how things are working. And then... It's time. So the other plane's right beside us. He's got his video camera out. And so I climb out of the seat and I start doing this wing walk, right? And I'm just stark naked. And there, everybody's laughing and just getting to laugh at it. And I'm getting beat to death in the wind. Let me tell you, it was painful. But I, I already committed to this, right? So I've got to follow through with it. So then I go down on the landing gear and the landing, you know, the tires there and everything. It didn't collapse, the old airplane. So I'm hanging off the wheel and everything. And it's just, I'm just getting beat to death. Finally, I let go, and I'm, I'm free-falling. Everything's great. And then I drop that chute when it comes about time. I had no idea I had that nut meat stuck up underneath that trap, that, that, that chute trap. So that was painful because there ain't no way to get out from underneath of it while you're dangling. Have you ever told this story in public before? Uh, yeah. Well, not in public. I mean... Guys, you're not going to hear the phrase nut meat very often. Yeah, it's, I think I coined that phrase, nut meat. But I think everybody knows that it's the, oh boy, you know, the straps go around on you in a pair of streets so you have a seat when you deploy and all your weight yeah. the straps. And apparently he had a little bit of like a, like a stripper does. I was a little ball. pendulous at the time, I think. Right. And so things were kind of hanging to the right at that point, the ghibli bits anyways. Okay, all yeah. right. So, um, regular visits to the new beach, a little new skydiving. I mean, this is... Oh, and, cool. the, and the problem is, is I'm coming in for this really cool landing, right? And, and I had got out there so early, and there was nobody there, so I figured I could get by with it. And we had messed around up, up high. And where was it? This is in, in Hawaii, okay. in uh, North Shore, okay. Dillingham Airfield. And so, I'm coming in, and I try to flare, and I try to land on my feet and everything. My feet had gone numb. You know, I did a butt scoot, bare eyes naked, about 30, 40 feet. And I looked around, and there had been 125, 150 people standing around, yeah. all waiting to go plane the glider, take a ride in a plane, or whatever the hell it might have been. I was so embarrassed. Shrinkage was immense. Just because, this is because it was so cold, and I was beat to death up there. Note to self, never do it again, right? I got it, I got it. But so this... So this, <laughs> this tape was circulated around Skydive Hawaii for decades. And I guess it was something that the guys would just say, hey, come in here, we'll see something funny. Watch this tape. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, and it's those young, stupid things you do. When, it's just things you do when you're just young and stupid. How's that? Better phrasing. Got it. I got those two. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about kind of what your rhythm is like. You've got a shop at your house? Yeah. How big is your shop? Four-car garage. Four-car garage. Yeah. Okay. I live in Kaneohe up against the Ko'olau Mountains. When it rains, I have 14 waterfalls in front of my place. Cool. Yeah. 
And then, uh, does your brother work with you? Or, uh, no, I have Jeff Park. He works with me. He's been working with me for about 15 years. He does the CAD CAM stuff. Okay. I mean, when is I started with... Also? He is, okay. yes. And and when he was... Uh, well, let's just... When I worked with... When I started working with Kershaw, I was making onesie, twosie knives. I was making them by hand, 100% uh, custom. I would die cam my parts. I'd make my templates out of plexiglass. I'd do whatever I had to do, and I'd build this knife. Problem is, when I send it to Kershaw... And they start try to start doing this thing in production. They have to re- reverse engineer everything that I'm doing. And oftentimes they did that and took kind of creative privileges with my designs. And and so I had a big conversation on Blade Forms back in the day. And I'm like, well, you know, I got to take control of this stuff a little bit better. And I need to do some of this CNC thing, some of this CAD CAM thing, so that I can finish a prototype and send my CAD file and a finished prototype to the company so they, so they can, that. right. And it's all engineered and it's ready for them to go. There's not, it doesn't take a whole lot of extra work on their part. Right. I mean, they may have to change some things to make it more friendly to manufacture in high volume, right? Those sorts of things. And, uh, and so Jeff, Jeff came in, I had another guy, but he passed away and Jeff came in, he was a customer of mine and he just hung around the shop all day. And after a while, I'm like, dude, if you're gonna stand there, you know, I'm gonna give you a job. And then he started working, and after a while, it's like, well, shit, you're working for me. I guess I'm obligated to pay you. So is it just you in the shop again? It was me and Jeff for a long time. Now I've got a new guy, and he's a ringer, and I think he's going to be an amazing knife maker if he sticks with it. Okay. Young guy named Joey Kiddo. He's only been with me for three months. He come in, and he's like, hey, I want to learn how to grind knives. I want to do this. I'm like, nope, ain't going to do it. At 33, you want to do this for a living? The only way you can do this is CAD CAM. Get in there and learn Mastercam. Get in there and learn Fusion 360. Learn how to run the CNC. And I want you to engineer and design your own knife. And I said, De- December 1st, the machine's yours. I want you to make it, you know, three prototypes. And he did. And he, he wouldn't let us touch a knife. I mean, he hanged around those blades. He did a hell of a job. The knives are brilliant. The kid's got more talent than I've seen in a long time. He did teach himself Mastercam. Not all. I mean, he's still got a lot to learn, but he knows how to run the machine. He taught himself Mastercam. He taught himself uh, um, Fusion 360 inside of three months and how to run the CNC mill. And this is a guy that was a valet. He has no real experience. How old is he? 33. It's amazing. There's there's an age, and I think right around, uh, it's right around early 40s right now. Mm -hmm. People raised that are a little younger than 45, they just take the digital shit like ducks to water. Oh, man. Over 45, it's kind of like a struggle. Like My son taught himself Corel Draw overnight. Right. I mean, I sent him to machine shop school in, in, in uh, shoots, Mooresville, North Carolina. And the kid's brilliant. He taught himself Fusion 360. Yeah. He learned Mastercam at school. He worked at some NASCAR race facility. You know, the school was, was kind of doing this thing. I mean, I'm just impressed with how fast, how fast these guys learn it. It's I, I'm scared. I just learned how to cut and paste a picture a few years ago on my cell phone. I didn't even know what a podcast was until recently. <laughs> and like, where do you go for this podcast? Isn't that what YouTube is? I guess not. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I started doing this on uh, YouTube about 12 years ago, and I was... Uh, I, to my knowledge, I'm the only knife company company owner who's hung it out the way I have. I mean, everybody knows what I'm up to. 
and then it's shifted over to this. Just one of those new beach metaphors? <laughs> yeah. I just Not Medford, to... it's Greg Metaphor? Yeah, I just got to speak in terms my guest on the show that they'll be familiar with. Okay, perfect. Uh, no, but, you know, I've been, I don't know anybody else who's kind of hung it out there as raw as I have. I mean, we know everybody in the knife business pretty much. They're nice. jarheads, man. It's how we're built. Yeah, and also, I, I don't like... It's all shock value, I'm man. Not, it is some shock value, but I'm not secretive. I'm very, very forthright about what's going on. And, uh, I, it, you know, it's one of the reasons the company's successful. People got to kind of, like, watch it happen. Well, you hire vets. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're doing the right thing. So, um, it, we shifted over to this format about, it, well, I don't know, about it, August. Since, you know, halfway through last year. And it's just a different format, but it's the way it's what I was doing on YouTube, anyways. But everybody's going on Spotify and iTunes, and they go to Greg Medford Show. And just put that in school search. And next thing you know, they're listening to this, and everyone's phone is set up so you don't have to be watching it on YouTube. They just put it on, and it plays in the background while you're doing what you're doing. And uh, got their earbuds in, grinding blades, listening. Yeah, yeah, that's what's going on. And you know, we talk heavy politics, a little bit on knives. And then, you know, we're starting to get people from all kind of different backgrounds, just basically trying to have authentic conversations. That's good. That's fun, man. This is this is fun. I love doing it. I, I try to I not I don't do very good on the social media thing. I've never really been good at self promotion. I guess that's why I work for the other company so they do it for me. I don't have to. I've never been one to say, Hey, look at my knives, come buy my knives. I mean, you've never really been that guy either. You're just putting it out there. Um I always felt it to be kind of disingenuous, and I've got—I'm too busy. What am I going to do? Set up a camera and a selfie stick and shit, and say, "Oh, now oh, I'm going to try no, to cut no, this no, lock," no. and 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 here I am grinding a blade. Look at me, aren't I cute? Well, I'm not—I'm not that guy. I don't know how to do it. The reason it started was because when I when I started my company, I had like 15 knives, and everybody said he's had it all made in China, and I was like, "The fuck I am? Let me show you." And I just said, "Here's, here's me grinding." And I put the video thing on, because I had no employees. I just put the video thing clipped onto a little thing on a pole off to the side, and I'm sitting there grinding knives. And I was like, oh, he's actually really making this stuff. And that was the only reason I did it, because I was just calling bullshit on all the oh, you must yeah. have an importer. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, what it's turned into is, uh, you know, it's kind of getting to know the core knife aficionado audience, because they get a chance to really look behind the curtain. Right. It's, it's not your retail buyer that's it's going to a, a big box retailer. It's your core knife manager. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a knife divas. Right. I could totally consider myself. I'm a steel diva. I'm a knife diva. I love knives. Yeah. And I want, I want the best. Now I'll carry a beater because sometimes people come and ask you to borrow your knife. I'm not going to give them a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, but I, yeah. So I gave you a knife today. I, I don't. I don't I give away knives pretty often, but, uh, you know, as you end up doing in the, in the knife business. Um, I hope you get a chance to give me some feedback on it. Oh, I will. And you know what, honestly, I looked it over, and I think it's brilliant. I mean, I like that you kind of took the, the, the Swiss Army approach, but I love that it's beefy. I love that you pulled no punches and you made it out of really good stuff. Um, I've got a chance to play with it a little bit. I like everything that you've done with it. I think it's going to be a star. I think you're going to do really, really good with it. I like the fact that it's modular. I think that people can customize these things the way they want and, and set it up the way they want. That's brilliant. And I think the price point being made in America is incredible. For what you have there, you're comparable to what people can get out of China at that same MSRP. That's ridiculous. How you're doing, I don't know, but God bless you. It's an amazing thing. It's pretty crazy. Uh, it's, the trick is keeping it simple. 
But you know what we did is, and I know you've experienced this kind of thing, we took what I've learned in the last 12 years making $800 pocket knives and brought a lot of that sentiment to this, to make it a process, right. not a craft. Because it's not, it's, I don't want to put the guys down who are putting them together, but it, it, we all know we can train somebody to put that knife together in an hour. It takes a year to learn how to make my, my legacy line of knives. But the thing that a lot of people don't realize is your stack tolerance issues when you're putting any kind of high grouping of the same knives yeah. together. I mean, some of your pivot tubes are going to be plus or minus uh, a thou. Uh, some of your pivot holes are going to be plus or minus a thou. And when you start stacking up all these tolerances over and over, oftentimes it's not possible to be able to put together knives rapidly just based on the stack, stack tolerances. Yeah. Well, that's the trick that we So however you've overcome that, that's, that's a huge challenge. And for somebody that kind of is involved in this stuff for a living, <laughs> I'm not making the knife. I'm building the onesie twosie prototype I'm designing and creating, but I'm not doing a high volume, but I've seen enough of it. Yeah. I know that's a real tough thing to do. It so is. It is. congratulations. Okay. Well, let me tell you something. The, uh, I have ground through a few employees who didn't get the vision uh, along the way. Mm -hmm. didn't understand what we were doing, but I just want, I think it's my most fun project I've done because it's so, it, it was such a big reach for me. It didn't look like anything. You had it on the download. You had a sly look in your eye for a long time. You were like, man, I want to tell somebody about this so bad, but I can't. You know, as I was telling, I was telling, uh, uh, I was telling the Reeves from 59, I was sending them little pictures. Mm -hmm. And the guys from Spartan and a couple other knife makers, I would send them a picture and be like, oh, it's getting close. Because, you know, the whole thing, just like all good branches of the military, the whole concept came to life in a bar. So to, to uh, put the whole thing together, I figured I'd text it to the folks. There you go. That's out. cool, yeah. Oh, you got a, I mean, Dan Delvin's a huge fan of yours. I mean. Oh, yeah, Dan, he's, he's great. He's a great dude, yeah. Yeah, he Love had that a guy. personal tragedy this past year. Huh? He did. Yeah. He did. Well, but, he, you know, I mean, he's a big, he's a big fan of your stuff. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's retired, but he still buys your stuff. He does, he does. He's still sells a little on the side, and he don't sell too many people's stuff. I think it's you and Chris Reeve about it now. Maybe a few yeah. Randalls or a few Customs here and there. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of cool. Well, listen, I hope we get you sometime to come out to the chapter and check it out, see what we're up to. Yeah. It would be fun to have you come by. I was just ducking in and ducking out, man. I didn't even think about it. I apologize oh, for that, but I'd love to do a factory tour at some point. And you'd love it, too, because it's like a Marine Corps Museum. I mean, it's pretty fun. Most guys come to like, oh, my God. I'm like, oh, Everything's OD green. <laughs> no, no. Everything's camo. No, it's better than that. You got chevrons on everything. No, no, it's better now. I, got, I have crazy memorabilia. Okay, cool. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. And now, what kind of memorabilia? I got some cool memorabilia. I'm just trying to figure out where to place it. Well, I mean, I've got original battle flags from battles. I've got flags captured by SEAL teams from ISIS. Cool. I've got uniforms from uh, the Indian Wars. I've got uh, cannonballs from naval battles uh, taken off the ocean floor. I've got the original two, there's only 14 in existence of the original Marine Corps sticky grenades that were made for the Revolutionary War. I have two of them. Very cool. I mean, I've got just weird stuff like that that most people wouldn't care about. Well, you know, original French city of Paris, uh, 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 Bella Wood, uh, hand done certificates for Marines. Oh, that'd be way cool, man. Yeah, I, yeah I'm anxious cool to see stuff it. Stuff like that, yeah. 
I'm anxious to see that. That'd be fun. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Like, guys come in. I mean, everybody comes in like, oh, my God, this is office. It's so cool. Your, all your studios are so cool. But it's just I've curated this memorabilia over time, and uh, and it's fun. I love it. Cause how long were you in the Marine Corps? Four years. Four years, and same with me. Yeah, but it's like funny that. how I just did it because I felt like, hey, <clears throat> I'm a healthy young American male, and a lot of people have fought and died to keep this country free and all that, and I need to do my patriotic duty for my country. I know that's an antiquated idea, but that's how I was raised. <clears throat> so I never intended to make a career out of it. I just doing my my uh, duty to yeah. my country. Yeah. But it gets so deep inside of you that even when you finally rotate out of the military, in our case, Marine Corps, man, you miss it. Uh, you you know, missed a camaraderie. Well, I get that through the night corps. I've met all these nice, uh, serious patriot you know, kind of rogue individual. Right, uh, but remember, we're 18 years old, and we're out in the world for the first time throwing hand grenades and shooting all kinds of crazy shit. And, and, and the thing about it is is we'd be homesick if it wasn't for the fact that all of us were about the same age, yeah. experiencing the same life away from home for the first time. It's a band and, so there, yeah, and so there's this camaraderie that yeah. you get, this yeah. brotherhood that you get. Yeah. And once you get out, you go back home or you go wherever you're going to go, and it's like your buddies are still doing the same exact shit they was doing yeah. before they graduated high school or they're working at the supermarket. Or, and, I mean, you've been all over the world and you've thrown hand grenades and ridden around in tanks and, yeah. and crashed Humvees and jumped out of perfectly good airplanes for no apparent reason. So I, I get a call uh, two, three weeks ago, and it's from my squad leader. Uh, and he calls the doctor and says, hey, uh, my name's Carl, Carlo Ludico. I was, I was uh, friends with Greg Medford, if this is the company. Mm -hmm. That's my number one thing. So uh, he and I were in the Middle East together. And uh, he's, his son now is of age to be buying knives. And they go on. He, he says, hey, he calls me. He goes, yeah, you ever heard this website called Blade HQ? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, my son wanted to show me this knife, and we were on there, and there's a little snippet of a video. They're like, oh, we got this crazy ex-moon that makes knives. He's super opinionated, but we love his stuff. Because that was, like, the title of the video. And he goes, That's a long he title. He goes, Sounds like Greg Medford. Yeah. And, and so he didn't know. I, we haven't talked. He, didn't, he doesn't even know I'm in the knife business. No kidding. He goes, So his son clicked on the video, and it was me, and he says, I about fell out of my chair. He goes, That was my old... <laughs> so we reconnected and flying out here to Arizona. He's oh, that's cool. Border Patrol now. We're just talking, and it was so funny. Oh, yeah. Reconnecting. He was one of my favorite guys I've ever friends with in the Marine Corps. That's it. And we man. just kind of lost time, and, and, and the internet slapped us back together. I have, a, I have the same. I mean, I got a buddy that we were roommates practically the whole time. We're in the Marine Corps together. Worked same squadron, did the same thing. And we're still best friends. We're still best buddies. He, he retired from the Marine Corps. I didn't, but I mean, we're still best brothers today. You can't break that bond. What's so funny is we hadn't talked in 25 years, and we picked up the phone, and it was like we were back in a fight. Yeah, together yeah. Together. It's like all that time had passed. It just—it was like we were. The, it was like it was like yesterday, and now it's today. And we see each other, and we just saw each other yesterday. Same kind of crazy balls in your face. He's flipped, you know, he's, he's told CBP to, you know, eat a bag of dicks. I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not getting vaccinated. Go ahead. Go ahead, government. Try and fire me. You know, because he knows what it is. Yeah. You, you know, same kind of like in your face, jarhead attitude. 
and uh, and he he's cracking up because he's all he goes, oh my wife thinks I'm crazy. He goes, we're, we're exactly the same as we were when we were 18. So it's just kind of. Oh yeah, and that's the problem too is when you hang out with those old buddies that you served with. You know, you think you turn into an, a mature adult male, whatever. Oh. But then you, the second you see your buddy, it's like you're that asshole back back when you were 20 years old. Oh. It's the most incredible thing. Yeah. And when I, st- I mean, I was with Paralyzed Veterans of America after the Marine Corps for some period of time. Of course, after 9-11, felt a calling. You know, we got all these guys getting blown up, these young women, these young men getting blown up all over the place. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, law enforcement and fire department that that were put their lives at risk and were injured or killed uh, uh, during a during a, uh, a trade center thing and all that, yeah. and and but they would they would say okay they'd interrupt the news broadcast and say twelve soldiers critically injured in a car bomb outside of Baghdad end of story let's go talk back about cops and law and and fire department nothing against them wonderful folks I love them to pieces but I just felt a calling to my brothers right yeah. my brothers and sisters oh, yeah. they all have faces they all have names mm-hmm. don't just say twelve soldiers you know. Uh, killed in a, a car bomb outside of Baghdad. These people had faces, they had names, they were somebody's sons or daughters, for Christ's sakes. Give them some respect. So I felt like I got to get back in, found a buddy who was with Paralyzed Veterans of America, spent years and years there, and now I got a Alaska Healing Heart. Me and three of my friends started a, another nonprofit where all the money goes directly to vets. Yeah. Then be Alaska's Healing Hearts. Uh, we don't really promote it that much because everybody got to work, get a job, do what they got to do because it's 100% voluntary. Yeah. But, you know, getting back, getting these young soldiers that served in Afghanistan and Iraq and all that just together again, wounded and everything. Oh, man, it's the first time they've had that kind of camaraderie since their injury, sure. since they woke up in Tripler. Or not Tripler, but uh, what's, an, what's another other one? Are you, are you talking about here in the States? Yeah, hospital. Oh, um, uh, Walter Reed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first time that they've, they've actually, because, you know, oftentimes they get discharged out of the military while they're recovering from multiple limbs being blown off or what have you, and they're not even in the military anymore yeah, by the time they heal. Right, they feel like they abandoned their guys, yeah. you know, they felt like, they feel all this kind of, but you get a group of these guys together, holy shit, it's just like that, just like we were talking about right. getting together with our guys, except for right. a lot of handicap jokes. <laughs> Still, I'm staying with a group of double amputees. Still, every guy in the group but me is missing both legs. And this was out in L.A. And we're standing in the circle, and a guy walks up and recognized some of the fellows. And he says, oh, yeah, this is I lost my leg. Iraq as well. And, uh, and, and, and one of the guys goes, oh, let me see. So he pulls up his pet leg. And he has, got, has a cane, and he hits his leg with the cane. And they said, below the knee? Is he like, just one leg? Yeah, and he goes, nah, you fucking pussy. <laughs> 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 like, it, was, it was so funny. It was, it, was, it was four guys, eight missing legs, and they make fun of a dude missing his leg because it's only one below the knee. It's only one below the knee. Yeah, like, fuck you. I yeah. mean, total Marine Corps <laughs> Exactly. Oh, it's funny. You go out to dinner with these guys and they're sorting through legs because you got to take their leg off when you're having dinner. And they just, the next thing you know, underneath the dining table, there's like 20 legs and they're all piled up in a ball. You know, they never know what they're going to get when they reach under there and grab a leg. And most of the time, somebody grabs a leg to pour a bottle of beer in it or a jug of whiskey and pass it around the room. It's funny. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure uh, spending more time with you. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your day here. Absolutely, Greg. Thank you very much. 75, brother. All right, sports fans, so uh, that's the Greg Medford Show. I hope you guys enjoy. 
we're going to be trying to bring you guys in season two here a plurality of people with a bunch of different backgrounds. Uh, it's the human experience, the American experience. It's how individual, how fucking awesome this country is. So America, check us out on iTunes. Check us out on Spotify. You can even check us out on YouTube. Rumble. And Rumble. I'm out.